Thanks for tuning in to our Neighborhood Church podcast. Join us on Sunday at any of our locations. To learn more about our church, visit neighborhoodchurch.com or download our church app. All right, guys. Now we're going to hear from Pastor Ron. He's our pastor of counseling, and we're going to hear from his wife, Marilyn, too. They've been sharing with us their life storms, and they have graciously let us in into their grieving process. So we're thankful for their open hearts to share, and we look forward to how God is going to use them in our lives today. Guys, I'll see you next week. Bye. Something that you need to understand is when the fire happened, my husband and I were leaving on uh, the following Wednesday. Fire was Friday. The following Wednesday, our oldest daughter uh, was getting married in Nebraska. And so we had to make the painful decision that someone needed to represent us. Her daddy couldn't do her service, and but I went and was able to be at the wedding and give her away and then stayed and was with the grandchildren for a week after getting them settled in their home while they were on their honeymoon. Well, I love to decorate, so organizing their home was really a blessing. And pictures were up, curtains were up, every drawer was organized, every closet. And they were happy to be settled when I left. And so, but but Ron was not able to marry his daughter. He was home with the fire. So that was another happy tragedy in a sense that we could not be there. Our grandson was supposed to go and was gonna walk our daughter down the aisle. So there were, it was a trade-off between God getting everything in order and us putting aside what we would have liked to have done and just do what what was best for the situation. Ron staying home and caring with the fire in the house and all the emotions that went with that and me going and representing us uh, for her wedding and her getting married for the first time at 39. So um, that was another tragedy that was kind of fitted in, but it was as well a blessing. It was just a lot for a small period of time. I would say when you talk about the stages of grief, I think for me, I went through all of them. Um, Anger, depression, frustration, loss of hope. I mean, so many things had gone wrong so quickly. Um, She lost her job as a substitute teacher because of the COVID thing. And my clients decided not to come in for counseling, which is probably understandable. We're not supposed to be together. Uh, So in a sense, my business collapsed, her outside interests and income collapsed. Um, Now, God's taking care of us financially, but it has been emotionally for me very hard. One of the reasons I didn't go back to do my daughter's wedding was not just I had things to do with the fire, which I did, but I was emotionally devastated. I couldn't imagine flying to Nebraska and doing a wedding um, because I was dead inside. And I remember I watched the wedding on on, uh, YouTube. They broadcast it for me. Um, and I and I just wept through that wedding because I couldn't be there. And my daughter called me after the wedding, 
And she was so good to me, and she just said, Daddy, it's okay you weren't here. Mom was here, and I could feel you being here. And I so much wanted to be a part of that. I mean, 39 years we've been waiting. She married a wonderful fellow um, whom we enjoy immensely. But that was another loss, another, what I would say was failure on my part. I couldn't pull it together. But that's just how down and devastated I felt. So for me, the recovery is just taking longer uh, because um, I feel so many of the things I depended on for, norm- for normalcy are not there. Good morning. Welcome to Neighborhood Church. I'm Pastor Justin. I'm usually from the Los Alamitos campus, but I am thrilled to be with you this morning. Um, I had the pleasure of sitting down with Ron and Marilyn uh, when we filmed that, and I'm so grateful to them, um, and I hope you are too, for how, with, for how much vulnerability they've shared and how they've really led us into their lives. And as we're all grieving in our own ways, um, to kind of all of us to see how they're doing it and how they've processed through it and how they're continuing to. So grateful to them. Um, and in this, we see how tricky it is to navigate some of the grief and some of our disappointments in life, right? We see the great joy that they were able to celebrate a wedding with one of their daughters. And at the very same time, we see great sadness as they lose their home and have the estrangement of other family members. And life is full of ups and downs. And, and often at the same time, and you don't need me or the Jacksons to tell you that, right? That's the world we're living in right now. For example, you may be experiencing the joy of graduation, but there's no graduation. You are experiencing, you have a new grandchild, but you can't visit that grandchild yet. You're hoping for some time alone, some time to reflect, and now you're always alone, and it's getting really hard. Or you've been wanting a little more family time, life to slow down, and now you've got a lot more family time, and you could use a break. Um, you know, however it plays in your scenario, we, we get this. We understand this. We understand that we have to hold joy and pain in tension at times. And this gives us an analogy to Job. And I say an analogy because joy is not on Job's horizon right now. So, um, but we still have this mixing thing going on in Job, this tension. And for Job, it's the tension of good theology, what he knows about God, and a terrible experience that doesn't match up to that. And so that's what he's trying to navigate. That's what he's trying to fit together. Last week, we saw Job grieve. We saw him vent, and we saw him really unload and just spill his his guts. And it was very much from the depths of who he is. Um, This week, he's starting to think it through, and it's going to be messy when we start thinking it through. When we're not sure what to do, Um, And we're trying to figure it out. What we look for is things to hold on to. And that's what we're going to see from Job today. Our title today in the form of a question, um, which is fitting. We're in the middle of Job's jeopardy. I wish we would have thought at the beginning, right? But what do I hold on to in the storm? And this is a critical question because Job is, is going back and forth. He's holding on to these truths he knows about God, but he's also possibly in the process of rejecting it because he just doesn't think it applies to him. And so where we are last week, Job's friends sat with him and just sat in their grief. But now they're going to start going round and round with Job, literarily, not literally, but literarily today, where each friend goes back and forth with Job. One friend, friend number one, then Job responds. Friend number two, then Job responds. Friend number three, then Job responds. And they go through that cycle three different times over the course of 24 chapters. Now, you are welcome. We are not going to go through all 24 chapters because it's pretty repetitive at times. And so what we're going to do this week and next is pull back and look at how Job responds to his friends' accusations of him. 
Because the friends, they, there's definitely some nuance to it that happens in about 24 chapters that there'll be some different angles on it. But the overall gist of it is this. They're saying, Job, we know how the world works and it's clear that you brought this upon yourself. You know, think Lenin style uh, instant karma, knocked you right in the head kind of thing. That's what they're saying is going on with Job. Now we'll get to that in a few minutes. But for now, I, w- I want you to, I want us to look at what we should hold on to throughout the week. So we're talking about what do I hold on to in the storm? And so there's a central thought I want you to think through that is going to encourage you to continue thinking through the week about who you are, who God is, and what in the world's going on. And it's this. This is what I want you to remember. False assumptions ruin good logic. What I mean by that is when this is all over, God gets Job's back. And as we read through some of what we're going to read today and some of the other things Job says, I wonder, wow, Job, I, I might have been on your friend's side on this one. That's a little much here. And so um, I think the key is, and I'll explain this as we go, that false assumptions ruin good logic. So let's work through this. Let's see what happens. Go ahead and turn in your Bibles to Job chapter 9. Open your Bible, open your Bible app, a window on your computer to Job 9, whatever. And since we're covering two chapters, we're not going to hit every verse. We're going to hit some highlights. We'll have it on the screen for you. But as your turn, or actually before you do that, let's pray together. Uh, would you join me in praying? Father, thank you for this opportunity to be together. It's, we're not together how we would like to be, um, but this is what we have for now. And so, Father, we thank you for the technology and the ability and the teams to pull this off where we can meet, with, meet together virtually. And so, Lord, we pray. We know that your, your Holy Spirit isn't bound by anything. And so we ask that your Spirit would speak to us this morning through the Word and that we would leave here differently or we would be different after this time we've had together because we've been challenged, we've been encouraged, we've received the word from you that we need to receive um, for our good and for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So first thing we wanna do here is look at those things that Job is holding on to in the storm. What are the truths about God that Job knew were true beforehand now that we've moved out of his gut response of I wish I was never born, that was last week right? But now he's starting to think through this with a little uh, unhelpful help from his friends. And so let's go to Job chapter nine, verses one to three. And it says this, then Job answered and said, truly, I know that it is so, but how can man be in the right before God? If one wished to contend with him, one could not answer him once in a thousand times. And so behind this, and that's a little cynical, but behind this is some truth that God is righteous. He's just, he's holy, he's pure. He is altogether different from us. If we step up and challenge him, we better be pretty confident in our case. Now remember, false assumptions, they ruin good logic, but this is a good assumption that God is altogether different and holy and righteous. And so Job hasn't forgotten this. It's a good thing. Next, we keep reading verses four to seven. He is wise in heart and mighty in strength. Who has hardened himself against him and succeeded? He who removes mountains and they know it not when he overturns them in his anger, who shakes the earth out of its place and its pillars tremble, who commands the sun and it does not rise, who seals up the stars. And I could keep going for a few more verses. God's powerful. He rules over creation completely. And whereas we tremble before creation, whether it's from a virus to an earthquake around here, they tremble at him. False assumptions ruin good logic, but this is another good assumption by Job that God is powerful. And it's a good place to build our lives from logically. 
There's one more truth that Job is holding on to or at least wrestling with this morning. If we go to verses 11 and 12 of chapter 10, so we're jumping quite a bit ahead here. And Job's a pretty hard book. It's pretty edgy. And so we get a real tender insight into God's care for his creation in verses 11 and 12. It says, you clothed me with skin and flesh. You knit me together with bones and sinews. You have granted me life and steadfast love and your care has preserved my spirit. So there's this assumption that God, well, is that God is creator. And the assumption is that a creator cares for his creation. We sang about being canvas and clay there, right? Just a few minutes ago. So God cares for his creation. That includes Job. False assumptions ruin good logic. But here is yet another good assumption by Job is that, and, and for us, that we should build our lives and God is our creator and he cares. So now what? I think I heard some amens from some of you, right? That's all good stuff. We like that, but, but to be honest, Job's not feeling it. And if some of us are honest, we're not feeling it either. We're saying, if that's all true, then why are we in this mess we're in? In fact, I don't even have to tell you Job's not feeling it. I'll show it. I'll prove it. God's just, he's holy, he's, he's righteous. Okay, but he, Job also says this a few verses later, verses 14 to 16, how then can I answer him? Choosing my words with him. Though I am in the right, I cannot answer him. I must appeal for mercy to my accuser. If I summoned him and he answered me, I would not believe that he was listening to my voice. Doesn't sound like Job thinks God is that just. And and this is the main contention of Job here. So if you keep reading, you'll see it several other places as well, um, where Job questions whether God's just or not, at least as it pertains to Job. Maybe he's going to be just and right to everyone else, but I'm not so sure he is to me. Because otherwise, why would I be in this mess? But it's not just justice. Remember, God's powerful. He's strong. And Job's not so sure that God's going to do good with that strength. Again, um, at least as it pertains to Job, we keep reading chapter 9, verse 17. For he crushes me with a tempest and multiplies my wounds without cause. He will not let me get my breath, but fills me with bitterness. It is a contest of, if it is a contest of strength, behold, he is mighty. If it is a matter of justice, who can summon him? Though I am in the right, my own mouth would condemn me. Though I am blameless, he would prove me perverse. We get back to the justice part of it near the end. But as far as God's muscle goes, Job's pretty, much, pretty sure it's dialed in on him and not in a good way. That God's basically playing whack-a-mole with him. And, and that's what he's thinking. That God's power, yeah, he's powerful, but it's focused on me in the wrong way. And he's still not done. Remember, God's creator as well. Remember those, those tender words from how he knit us together with bones and sinews. Well, let me read you where we find that in the context there. Chapter 10, verses, starting in verse 8. Your hands fashioned and made me, and now you've destroyed me altogether. Remember that you've made me like clay. We even just sang about that. And will you return me to the dust? Did you not pour me out like milk and curdle me like cheese? And then we get to those nice verses that we read earlier. You clothed me with skin and flesh and knit me together with bones and sinews. You have granted me life and steadfast love and your care has preserved my spirit. That's beautiful. And then it turns. He says, yet these things you hid in your heart. I know that this was your purpose. And he's talking about all the junk that's happening to him. He's like, you're just fattening me up for the slaughter. Like you set me up and you've turned on me. This is heavy. This is hard. Um, Job is relentlessly expressing his disappointment with God here because he kind of used God. I've been cleaning out my office lately and I found this far side um, cartoon. And I think that kind of 
explains to us what we're thinking here, what, what, what an image of what Job might be thinking here of God just can't wait to take him out, that he's pushing the smite button on Job right now. You ever wish there was a smite button? I don't know. I think it would be used on me before I used it, so I'm probably glad there isn't. Anyways, this ends much like last week, Job wishing he had never been born. So he went through some process, but he has not advanced terribly far. I just want to say we're so thankful that you have tuned in this morning. I'm not sure you are yet, so stick with me, though. This gets better, okay? Um, False assumptions ruin good logic. Job believed the right things about God in one sense, but he didn't believe they were going to apply to him. So if false assumptions ruin good logic, where's the disconnect? What is going on here? Why does this not working the way Job thinks it should work? Well, I mentioned jokingly John Lennon's line from Instant Karma earlier, but the, the term that theologians use is called retributive, the retributive principle. One of the commentaries I'm reading uses it so often, he just got tired of spelling it. He just puts RP all over the commentary. So, but the gist of it is, you do good things, good things happen. You do bad things, bad things happen. And this actually is not foreign to scripture completely. If you read Proverbs chapter one, verse 33 says, whoever listens to me will dwell secure and will be at ease without dread of disaster. So it's the concept of if you sin, then, then you'll suffer. And let's be honest, there's something to commend that. There's wisdom to that. That's kind of the wisdom of Proverbs, right? And, and it's true to a certain degree. If we sin, there is suffering. We damage our own souls. We hurt those around us and we We suffer judgment eventually. But Job's friends don't stop at what could be some basic thoughtful wisdom for living. They expand it by inverting it. Here's what I mean. They take, if you sin, then you will suffer, which is is, is part of how we live well, but they flip it. And they say, if you suffer, then you have sinned. And it's a subtle shift, but it's deadly. And that's what's crushing Job. And Job probably believed this to a certain degree too um, until he went through these experiences he's going through. That's why this isn't just grieving for him. It's spiritually damaging and he's not sure what to think about God here. His assumptions, what he thought he knew is not lining up with his logic or experience. False assumptions ruin good logic. So something is askew and Job's trying to figure out what it is. And so we're hitting this simply and quickly here, but it's critical For understanding Job. Job has always fascinated me, and I've always felt like it's a little bit out of my reach for understanding how it all fits together tightly. And I think this is the key that Job is arguing that this is unjust based on the retributive principle, the idea that my sin has caused this exact thing. And he's right in that regard. But we read it through the lens of Paul, where we understand, well, none of us can stand before God. In that sense, He's not right, but that's not what he's arguing. So that's helped me significantly um, get a better grasp on this. So let's take a couple seconds. Think about where we are in Job, and then we'll see what this does. We'll bring it to our neighborhood today. He knows there's some wonderful truths about God. He has some good assumptions there. But he also doesn't believe these wonderful truths about God are actually going to manifest themselves in his life. He's just not seeing it, and it's understandable because he is getting wrecked right now, devastated. And so, as we're learning false assumptions ruin good logic, Job's logic is fine in a world where there is a one-to-one correlation with our sin and our suffering. But that's not always the case. It's maybe not even most of the time the case. We can think of cases where we see someone who is upright and righteous, and they flourish and thrive, and we love those stories. And we see unfortunate stories where people do great wickedness, and then they get their, their just punishment for that, and We don't necessarily like that, but we're glad that that's the case. But I bet you can think of someone who's who's 
pretty wicked and they're prospering. They're either powerful or wealthy or whatever, right? And you probably know people in your life or maybe you're that person who is a virtual saint and for whatever reason, you just keep getting kicked in the teeth over and over again. This one-to-one correlation isn't generally how things work. And so Job in a legal sense is right as far as he knows, but the point of Job is there's a lot we don't know. There's a lot that's happening behind the curtain. False assumptions ruin good logic. Job's logic was fine. His assumptions were way off about what was happening in Job 1 behind the curtain. And that's why God largely honors Job near the end, even if his assumptions are incorrect. At least that's the way I understand it. Enough about Job. What about us? What do we do with this today? How does this speak to our cultural moment, the suffering we're enduring today? Well, since false assumptions ruin good logic, um, let's start by examining our assumptions. And we have a lot of assumptions in our world when it comes to suffering, and not all of them are good ones. In fact, um, Pastor Mike mentioned Tim Keller's book, Walking with God Through Pain and Suffering. He, he mentioned this on the first Sunday, um, and it's a fantastic book, very complete. I am uh, almost done with it. And he has this, cha- this section in the beginning, and listen to this. He says, quote, sociologists and anthropologists have analyzed and compared the various ways that cultures train its members for grief, pain, and loss. And when this comparison is done, it is often noted that our own contemporary secular Western culture is one of the weakest and worst in history at doing so. Not just weakest and worst right now, in history at doing so. This is bad. Um, When I was young and you used goat in reference to sports, the goat was the field goal kicker who missed the winning kick or the quarterback who threw the interception at the end of the game instead of the touchdown. But now it's been flipped. Now GOAT is an acronym for greatest of all time. Well, um, sometimes I'll make a particularly dad bad, jo- uh, bad dad joke and one of my daughters will tell me that I'm the woat and that is the worst of all time. And so when it comes to suffering, generally as a culture, we're the woats. We're terrible at this. Now, Here's the thing, this is important to understand that there's a good side to that. Because of that, we go, we move heaven and earth to relieve suffering, and that's a good thing. Um, it leads us to work relentlessly, to find antidotes to the virus and, and deal with all kinds of suffering. That's the good side of it. But when the absence of suffering becomes in our minds a birthright in our worldview, then we have problems, and we become particularly fragile and fearful. The fact that we wouldn't expect suffering in our life is false assumption number one. The Bible never, ever promises a pain-free life. It never has. Jesus told us, in this world, you will have trouble. There are no biblical heroes without scars. Think about them, Joseph, Job, Ruth, Paul, David, and of course, Jesus. Pain comes with faithfulness. False assumptions ruin good logic. So let me help you banish the thought that God's primary concern is your comfort and your happiness. It's not. In fact, check that actually. He wants you to find your happiness, but he knows your greatest happiness is going to be found centered on him. And so often to help us do that, it takes pain to redirect us in those other areas when our loves are out of order. So as St. Augustine says, we need to reorder our loves so that he is the primary love. And so it often takes pain to get us pointed in the right direction. Biblical faithfulness means a willingness to suffer. And we don't have to like it, but it comes with the package and God wants to do something in us in those opportunities. That's the first false assumption. Suffering's gonna happen. Next 
False assumptions ruin good logic. So what's the next false assumption that it could be that your suffering is always your fault or never your fault. Basically, we don't want to waste our suffering, right? We want to be thoughtful about it and figure out what's going on. Now, Job and his friends are jumping too quickly to, hey, Job, this is your fault. And Job, no, this isn't my fault. But that's still something that we need to process. Um, And then we need to deal with it. So as you think about it, and if it is your fault, then own it, repent, and deal with the repercussions. Being defensive is just prolonging the agony and delaying the healing and causing even more damage. If it's not because of something you've done, then name it and grieve it and and refer to last week's uh, sermon and let it out. And there could be a lot of things outside of us that are not our fault. It just is, and we have to deal with it. It could be betrayal. It could be loss. It could be a mysterious thing like what Job's dealing with, just way beyond anything we can figure out. But as much as we can, recognize what's going on so that we can navigate forward and apply the correct remedies and discern the correct lessons and, and also so we can banish false guilt that if it's not on you, then don't wear it like it's on you. But because false assumptions ruin good logic, just smoothing over the surface can cause unnecessary pain and cause it to prolong. And who wants that? Aren't we dealing with a, enough here? Suffering is a complicated journey. And so wise self-evaluation and loving evaluation from friends to help understand it can be incredibly helpful in correcting our false assumptions about suffering or ourselves. False assumptions ruin good logic. And the other deadly false assumption that we want to deal with this morning is false assumptions about God. Job knew God, but his false assumptions about his situation caused him to waver and to, to, to at least get a little shaky on what he knew. And so when I ask, what are you holding on to in the storm? What do we hold on to in the storm? We need to hold on to God and the truths we know about him. And there's two aspects to this. Certainly, most importantly, is we want to hold on to him. So there's the relationship piece, but there's also the truth piece, the community and the content. And so prayer is how we engage God personally. We talk, we listen, we take notes of the insight that the Holy Spirit has given us as we navigate our suffering. In fact, Pastor Lorena just told us with the, the bear storm right there that Jesus is in there with us and we, we come to him. Will we believe our fears instead of Jesus is what the story said. So that's the first thing that we do. But beyond leaning in relationally, we need to be grounded in God's truth. We need to be in the word. And this isn't a short-term project. If you've not been in the word, then this is going to be really hard. Um, slapping a, a Bible verse on on our pain in the moment, if we've never thought about it before, is kind of like, you know, patching up an open heart surgery with a Band-Aid. It's, it's, it's better than nothing, but it's, it's not going to meet the depths of where people are. It, it needs to be ingrained in us. It needs to be deeper in us. And that's why we're doing kind of spiritual triage work here with Job, because the suffering so broadly here. We're, we're kind of flying, building this plane as we fly it, but we need to be building for the long term too, because we're gonna we're pretty foolish if we don't start preparing for the next hardship in our life. That we need to use this as a wake up call for us to begin building those habits into our lives, so that when the when the next suffering comes, we're gonna be able to stand in it. And by the way, false assumptions ruining good logic. It's a false assumption to think this is the last time any of us are gonna suffer. Um, so lean into God, lean into His Word, and let it shape you. Like the person who builds, in Jesus' sermon on that, builds their life on the rock, this is how we do it. 
we meet God in his word. We meet God by the power of the Holy Spirit in prayer, and it builds those strong foundations, and we'll be standing when the storm passes. Now, I realize we're all in different places when it comes to that. Some of you are, um, have been reading the Bible for years, and you know how to do it. You've got it nailed. And if that's where you are, you keep rocking and keep doing your thing. But others, you're like, I, I, I get it, but the Bible seems so foreign to me. It's so confusing. And so <clears throat> if you need help, that's why we're here. Um, Pastor Kerry does a, a more good news. Uh, he released it on Friday, and, and he and I did a little interview on how to have a personal devotional time with God. So check that out. It's on the website or on the YouTube page. Um, and also, I, I told some folks from Los Al, I'm telling them this morning, I guess I told them Thursday night, but they're seeing it this morning, um, that we're going to do a Zoom meeting where I'll walk them through, whoever wants to. If you want to join us in that, neighbor, Justin at neighborhoodchurch.com, we'll get you plugged in and we'll walk through how to have a devotional time in a very basic way to meet with God and start building those foundational pieces we need. So I don't know if this encourages you. I hope it does. False assumptions ruin good logic, but we'll see that while God, you know, he's, he, he isn't totally thrilled with Job, but he also gives him some grace, some understanding by the end because he understands there's so much Job doesn't know. And so because of Job, we can take great comfort in that, that when we're suffering, we don't have to know all the answers because Job didn't. And so, and yet God was doing things behind the scenes. And so that allows us to maybe let some things go in our suffering, that it doesn't have to make total sense to us. We still want to think about it, but it doesn't have to make total sense. And because we know false assumptions ruin good logic, we can redeem the time of our suffering for self-examination, for pressing deeper into God, because we know that he wants to teach us something in this. And to help that process, we need to be in the word and we need to let it shape us constantly because we never know when the next bout of suffering is going to hit. And in that, God establishes us on solid ground and we're shaped by the word. And as we're shaped by the word, our false assumptions will lessen and we'll walk more and more faithfully even when the storms hit hard. But even this isn't everything. There's one section in this passage we skipped. Uh, well, there's a few, but there's one that's worth noting um, but I think we're going to spend a lot more time on the next time it shows up next week. So I didn't want to steal too much thunder, but it's too good to pass up. Because Job's wise enough to know that he's in deep water, he's out of his depths, and he actually needs some help. He actually makes a, he, he, it's kind of a wish. He's like, wouldn't it be nice if there was a mediator? If there was someone to stand between me and God, to step in on my behalf. We see it in verses 32 to 35. For he, that's God, is not a man as I am, that I might answer him, that we should come to trial together. There is no arbiter between us who might lay his hand on us both. Let him take his rod away from me. Let not dread of him terrify me. Then I would speak without fear of him, for I am not so in myself. He wants help. He wants a mediator. He wants someone to stand between him and God's wrath. And like I said, I won't go too deeply into this, but this reminds us of a blessing that we have, the ultimate blessing, right? Um, Job didn't know what he was speaking about. Maybe the, Ho the Holy Spirit certainly did, but he didn't have at least a complete idea of what he's talking about here, what he meant. But um, we get to look back at the cross and we get to see the fullness of what this means. And just, I want to read a, <clears throat> a couple of verses for you. First, first Timothy chapter two, Verses three to six, this is good and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. 
For there is one God and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. That's another good assumption to build our lives on. If we want him, Jesus is with us in the storm, in the boat always, and he will never leave us. And this is what we recall when we celebrate communion. John's going to lead us in that in just a moment. But for Job, I'm going to leave you with it to be continued. So would you join me as we close in prayer? Father, we thank you for your amazing goodness and kindness to us. Um, And uh, it's stunning, Lord. We read Job and the suffering is so deep. The suffering is so great and it resonates with us. Maybe we haven't suffered to the degree that Job has, but in some ways we feel it. Um, In some ways we're overwhelmed, um, we're grieved, we're disoriented and confused, and we even start to wonder where you are and if you're in this. And I thank you for the reminder today that you are, and because of Jesus, um, you've been in here the whole time and you aren't going anywhere. You're with us, and we rejoice in that. So we love you, Father. We thank you for this privilege of um, coming to worship you, even in our living rooms and wherever we are, that we can continue to focus on you and experience the change and the new life you offer us in Jesus. Not just despite, but particularly in these difficult times. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.